you know, this is one of my critiques sometimes of certain of the more breathless, uh, you know, kind of left defenses of automation is that they come off with this breezy tone of like, well, we just need to like automate, automate, automate everything and then just redistribute and, you know, reduce the work week and, you know, free up our time. And there is this nagging question of like, free it up for what? You know, for me, the, the automation for what? The for what is sort of figuring out in you know, better ways how we take care of each other and how we develop ourselves and how we build out new kinds of social relations in this in the spaces left behind by uh, by an existence that's dominated by work as not only the source of our material security but also the source of so many people's sense of self worth and place in society and yeah for some people that makes post work kinds of arguments kind of threatening or problematic but it is for me it, it is it's what makes them exciting. Hello, I'm Oshan Jaro, and welcome back to the Musing Mind podcast. On recent episodes, we've been exploring how the economic organization of society creates the conditions or a kind of evolutionary environment for particular kinds of subjectivity or consciousness to develop. And we're asking about ways to intervene in that system from a structural standpoint Right? So economic policies like universal basic income or various tax policies that redesign the evolutionary environment so that different kinds of subjectivity and so different kinds of human beings might emerge. And so today I'll be speaking with Peter Fraze, who is the author of just one of the most wonderful books uh, on this idea of how socioeconomic systems create those environments in which we become, in which human development occurs. Uh, His book is titled Four Futures, Life After Capitalism. And in it, he's blending together speculative fiction with social sciences to offer, you know, these four different possibilities for where we might go from here. Peter is also on the editorial board of Jacobin Magazine, which is a leading voice on the radical left. Um, And and so one of the areas I was really excited to speak with him about was to explore what socialism means in the 21st century, because so often we conflate socialism with kind of what happened in Soviet Russia, but nobody today is actually arguing for a return to that. So the question of what is the future of socialism and how can it interact with 21st century technologies and understanding society as a vast and complex system that cannot, or at least should not, be technocratically managed from some centralized authority making all the decisions. One of my favorite elements of Peter's work and of our conversation is his ability to communicate really complex and tangled topics, but in really accessible, uh, elegant ways. So I, I hope that you'll benefit as much from his way of making sense of things as I did. And as always, if you enjoy the podcast and want to help it exist, you can share your favorite episodes on social media, leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, or you can join my newsletter where I'll share new episodes when they're released, along with kind of all manner of things in this interaction between radical economics and contemplative philosophy. And if you really want to help the project uh, continue, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash where even a donation of $1 a month goes a really long way towards helping me improve audio and production quality and spend more time doing research. 
You can find both of those things, the newsletter and the podcast page linked at musingmind.org. And that's all I got. All right, here is my conversation with Peter Frase. Maybe a, a good place to start for people who are unfamiliar with you or your work, if you could give an idea of, of who you are and what you do, but more broadly, and I think more importantly, what are the persistent questions or areas of interest that kind of are woven throughout your work and uh, with Jacobin and writing your book? What are these kind of uh, questions that you, you keep turning to in one way or another? Sure. So, you know, I'm 39 years old now from Minneapolis originally. I've been left and socialist activist since I was a teenager uh, in Minneapolis, in Chicago, in New York City, now in the Hudson Valley, in New York. Uh, and I was also in a PhD program that I eventually dropped out of in sociology, where I was trying to kind of take my interests in Marxism and socialism, you know, that had been driven by my politics primarily and do them sort of in an academic framework. And thinking through a lot of things about what the core of the socialist and Marxist critique of capitalism as being about something more than just about distribution, more than just about, you know, income inequality, or even more than just about property relations, even though that's central to it, but to things about sort of the nature of how we should live and what the conditions of human emancipation and human flourishing really are and the way that work specifically in a capitalist environment uh, creates this you know, this framework of kind of unfreedom in which most of us spend huge portions of our waking hours with someone else as our boss in the sort mm. of the, the hidden abode of production, as Marx called it, where all of the sort of liberal freedoms that we were grow up thinking we should celebrate turn out not to apply at all once you're under the thumb of the boss. Mm. And I was thinking through that in academic work that I was doing, having to do with working time and struggles to reduce the work week and so on. And then at some point, you know, 10 years ago about I started doing more writing that was not for an academic audience that was like blogging and writing popular stuff. And this coincided with Jacobin Magazine getting off the ground, which was founded by Bhaskar Sunkara, who I knew from my activism in the Democratic Socialists of America. And that gave me kind of a platform from which to kind of explore ideas that came out of both my political work and also my academic research, but pitched in sort of a non-academic and not necessarily immediately polemical political way either. And so that was my, the articles I wrote in Jacobin and other places, the things that eventually led to my book all came from the confluence of those things. Yeah. And that's, that's a perfect lead in. Cause one of, one of the questions I wanted to ask you and kind of explore a little bit, uh, you, you wrote on this explicitly and I also see it, it comes up in a lot of your writing is this idea of, of what it means to be on the left today. Um, and that kind of, you know, I really want to get into what what socialism means in the 21st century, right? Because uh, so often it's kind of painted, uh, especially from people who don't read socialist literature, as a kind of nostalgic orientation to to past ideologies. And 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 the question that I see you kind of confronting a lot in in this discourse is very much to ask, kind of, what do we really want? Like, where are we actually going long term? And to work these longer term visions into the project at every step. And, and, you know, it's a question of, are, are we trying to go back to a kind of post-war welfare capitalism? Are we trying to emulate Scandinavian countries by orienting the capital system to fund this kind of rich infrastructure of public goods and healthcare and all of these things that kind of 
uh, mollify the conditions for us to participate in the world as it as it is. And, and, and so given like kind of this, this state of the discourse, this kind of short term welfare capitalism versus a bit of a longer kind of trajectory idea of what socialism is and means, I've, I've seen you a lot of times work in the idea of communism. And using that as a way to kind of expand the horizon of what we think the socialist project is about. Um, so I wanted to ask you about this, this kind of trajectory that you, that you see um, sometimes not going far enough in socialists. And, and what, how does that look? Where do you see it going? So in thinking about this and thinking about the, the visionary horizon of left politics and thinking about it in kind of a couple of senses, one is as you're suggesting, sort of how we frame our demands or how we frame what we're fighting for. Uh, and then also linked to that, some kind of attempt to understand uh, this historically, like and to understand historically uh, what has happened in sort of moments of high tide of struggle in which left parties and movements were able to gain certain things like the kind of welfare capitalism you're describing. You know, I think the thing now that's very notable in the politics we have today is that there is a kind of note of nostalgia that runs through the resurgence of left politics. You certainly see that in someone like Bernie Sanders hearkening back to, you know, an FDR and the New Deal or pointing Mm -hmm. to a sort of slightly imaginary Sweden uh, as the (laughs) kind of model for what what a better way of being could be than what we have now, you know, pointing to the fact that there are existing, you know, universal health care programs in other countries that we could model a better system on and all of that stuff, you know, I support and I, and I am involved in, you know, working on the, I spent the weekend doing Bernie Sanders campaign work uh, in the Hudson Valley. But mm-hmm. to me, you know, this distinction of socialism, communism that you brought up, what that points to is this idea that while we might want to have more secure, higher paying jobs, universal social benefits, stronger unions, some degree of worker control in the workplace, those things are, you know, way stations on the road, probably to something else. And I can put that in a couple of ways. One way to put it is sort of in a way that I did earlier, which is that, you know, if we just try to articulate as a principle, as a vision, what does real human freedom look like? To me, that has to mean as much as possible getting away from the world in which we are under the essentially authoritarian control of a boss. And it's still the case that you know, if your job is unionized, then that gives you some protections. If there's some level of workplace democracy, that means it's somewhat less of an authoritarian environment. But if you're still essentially in the condition of being forced to make the choice between taking whichever jobs are available or starving, then you're still in what Marx called the realm of necessity. You're you still kind of you still kind of haven't broken through to what Marx and many others, Keynes, People, not just in the Marxist tradition, have argued, which is that the last 200 years of capitalism have produced a world of incredible material abundance, but one which is controlled and distributed in such a way that it enriches a tiny elite while the rest of us continue not to work any less than we already are. Where, as we could ask the question, why aren't we turning that grand apparatus to freeing up time for whatever it is that we want? However, it is we might choose to organize our own lives, and if it wasn't outside the context of capital's work relations. And where I take that sort of thought historically is that this isn't just a matter of sort of me imagining like how I wish life could be, although it is that, but it's also looking at what happened if you go back, say, to the 60s, to the high tide of the welfare state in its previous iteration, you know, where to some extent, at least for some workers, there were these 
better, secure, higher paid union jobs, a much higher proportion of economic growth was being turned into material prosperity for workers rather than just for the capitalist elite. But what you found there was that this led the whole system into a crisis. And it did so in a cup for a couple of reasons. There's one reason, which is maybe the more commonly talked about one, is that it creates a crisis for the capitalist class itself in that labor discipline starts to break down, profits start to be squeezed. There's sort of a backlash from the owners of capital themselves. But you also see when you look at sort of wildcat strikes or workers kind of resisting work in various ways in this period, uh, you know, there was in the 70s, the sociologists and, and journalists called it the blue collar blues, which was basically just the fact that even if you could get that good high paid, you know, auto worker job that now we maybe kind of nostalgically romanticize a little bit, those still are brutal, deadening, dangerous right. jobs. And people didn't actually, they were just satisfied with that being the rest of their lives, you know. And so I think it's important for us to understand that that's even if in some ways we're fighting to get back to that high tide or to a 21st century version of it, uh, we can't stay there. Both It's both a matter of principle and just a matter of, I think, the historical development that we've seen in the past and that we would see in some way again if many of the things that the left is fighting for today were to be achieved. Yes. And uh, where that all leads for me, at least one way that I, I, I understand it is, is you wrote this um, in one of your essays for Jacobin. You wrote that the, the socialist project for me is about something more than just immediate demand for more jobs or higher wages or universal show, social programs or shorter hours. It's about those things, but it's also about transcending and abolishing much of what we think defines uh, our identities and our way of life. And this this speaks very much to this idea that you've also written about where the point of building a social democracy uh, is to break it, right, in, in, in provocative fashion. But I, I really think that this points to an important kind of differentiation, which is these things that we're fighting for are not necessarily the purpose of the struggle, but they're actually creating the conditions for the transformation to happen. So it's like, you, I really like that imagery of of these kind of uh, conditions being waypoints along a broader uh, a broader path. And and I, it's, I've always thought it's kind of ironic that, you know, the idea of just shooting for welfare capitalism or these kinds of things are associated with the mid 20th century and with the, the economy of, of John Maynard Keynes, Right. Um, because I, I know that you're very familiar with this, but it's ironic that Keynes is cast in that fashion because he himself was was incredibly uh, a pragmatic utopian. Right. His whole point was that the was to use what he called an objectionable capitalism um, to create the conditions for for a post scarcity society to emerge where you know, the marginal efficiency of capital went down to zero. And um, the the incentive of capital accumulation kind of withered away as as a central stimulus of human behavior. So he was very much in this line of the economy of, of the 20th century. What he was trying to do was create this, you know, the conditions for this uh, much further process of transformation. There's one of my favorite little bits in his correspondences. He he wrote a letter to uh, George Bernard Shaw, the playwright, and and in like a little couple sentences in a quip, which was just like Keynes. He wrote, uh, you know, as for the economy. Don't worry about that. Leave it to me. I'll take care of it. You know, as if like this overall like economic project was something that he could just kind of deal with, you know, in, in due fashion. I mean, that's that's that that line really kind of gets at both what's so compelling and so limiting about that aspect of Keynes, right? Because mm. it is he was really thinking past the horizon of the welfare state in a way that most 
Keynesians who came after him didn't. Right. Um, and of course, as you know, in his one of his more famous musings on this, the essay that's called uh, Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, mm-hmm. goes into this idea where he sort of expected that by our time, you know, we would be working 10 hours a week or something. And that the biggest problem we would have, the biggest social problem that we would have to confront is how, you know, how to get along and flourish and enjoy ourselves in the world when our lives were not organized around working for someone else all the time. And, right. But then, of course, that didn't happen. And the reason that it didn't, I think, and the reason why things didn't turn out the way Keynes might have thought is because he was still ultimately this technocrat who sort of wanted to just take care of the economy, as, as he said. Right. As though he could, he, as all competent managers could sort of do that. And then naturally, yes, the, the rentier class would wither away and working hours would decline as productivity increased and all would be for the best. And of course, what's missing there, what I would bring from my more radical or more Marxist perspective is a sense of really of class conflict, which is to say, not just a, so there's no, there's no kind of common agreement we can come to that will satisfy everyone's interests. Uh, in a world in which many people uh, suffer so that small number of other people can profit and live lives of great wealth. And so that's it. And so in some ways, I, I do I want to kind of reclaim that more visionary aspect of someone like Keynes, but tie it to the sort of more conflictual uh, dynamic that you were talking about a bit earlier, which is this this idea of building social democracy in order to break it, which also for me, that way of thinking is an attempt to kind of dialectically, overcome this very old debate that goes on on the left and that you still hear sometimes about, you know, reform versus revolution. Like Mm, the goal here to win piecemeal reform one at a time, whether it's debt relief or whether it's free healthcare and education or whatever, or is the point to build the revolutionary force that will seize power and dismantle the whole system. And this for me is a way of thinking about that in a more complex dialectical way and that these reforms, depending on how they're won and how they're fought for and how we struggle after them, can lead us to these new crises and new breaking points that do require us to think the possibility of revolutionary rupture rather than thinking that we can just reform our way to a social democratic welfare state and then stay there. Right. Yeah. And it, you know, it strikes me as interesting that neoliberal capitalism, when it kind of supplanted Keynesian in in the early 70s, in in one sense, they're always set against each other. But I also think there's an interesting resonance in which um, they they effectively took Keynes' emphasis on capital growth and technological innovation, but removed that kind of post-scarcity utopianism that created that broader context or vision for social evolution. And so we entered into this period of, of, of capital growth and growth for its own sake and visions of technological change, but not social change. And, but, but then again, you know, it seems that this idea of post-work or post-scarcity or post-capitalism, right? All these post ideas are, have been kind of coming back into the discussion, uh, maybe since the 08 financial collapse, but certainly in the past five or 10 years. How, how do you see these kind of utopian ideas that are, are making their way back into the conversation specifically as, as they differ from, from Keynes's vision. Cause like you mentioned, Keynes had this very top down kind of technocratic vision of, I will handle this, you know, a couple of very smart economists can, can do this on our own. So in, in what ways are these kinds of new utopian impulses coming back, but in kind of a more distributed or decentralized flavor? Well, you know, I think you're right that 2008 is kind of the breaking point for a lot of this because it's, the point at which it became clear that 
the neoliberal or, you know, kind of post-Cold War uh, economic model was no longer working. And Mm -hmm. in particular, that the class of technocrats who promised us that they were, in fact, laying the groundwork for stable prosperity, you know, that their shit didn't work. The financial crisis happened and we're still, you know, over a decade later, you know, capitalism has not really come up with a model of growth to replace the one that failed. Right. And so I think that drives this sort of desire to look for some some other path, something from below, something a little bit more rooted in mass politics. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I do think that because the younger for younger generations for whom the kind of uh, idea of this sort of stable, long term, unionized, high wage employment, uh, you know, it's just it's now far enough in the past that it doesn't seem particularly more realistic than Mm. kind of post-work vision. Uh, And so why not start to think about that? And I think that coincides too with thinking about all the ways in which if we, that thinking work too narrowly, you know, such as what happens in the, the actual waged workplace leaves out so much of what's important about human activity and human labor in other senses, like reproductive labor and care work and all of these kinds of things that happen both inside Mm. and outside of the wage relation. It's a little rambling, but I, I think that that is sort of what drives a lot of this. And I, I think it's also worth noting that the versions of kind of post-capitalist or post-work thinking that we get now do take some both their more mass-based forms and their more technocratic ones, uh, you know, like the universal basic income, which I think was something you wanted to get into. At another point is one of these these ideas that can often appear as like a technocratic fix for things, you know, in a, as a way of sort of short circuiting these dynamics of class conflict that I think are really at the heart of what's going on now. Right. Yeah. And I do want to get into that. Maybe just one more question beforehand. I find this time really exciting, right? It's kind of, it's almost chaotic with all these different ideas that are being floated around. Um, It seems fair to say that we're moving out of the kind of era of neoliberal um, economic ideology, but it's not clear, you know, what's going to take its place. And, And one of the themes of this podcast, and certainly, you know, my interest in economics is to view the question of socioeconomic design as ultimately a project where we're trying to design richer and better environments for human development to occur. I think that this is one of the ways we can point to what's been missing um, is this this notion that human development occurs not only in, in education that goes on in schools, but society is kind of a broad educational environment. And if one of the kind of ways that I think about framing my critique of at least the past 50 years is that we've been creating an impoverished environment that, that fails to foster meaningful kinds of human development, at least in certain dimensions. And, and, you know, this comes from broadening that, that scope of, of what education is and where it occurs. Um, and, and you see this kind of cropping up in a number of different strands of capitalist critique. Um, you have, you know, going all the way back to, I mean, Marx in some sense, but the situation it's in France, I found really interesting to kind of performatively point out the problem. Uh, the Frankfurt School, certainly, and all the way on through Mark Fisher. Um, and even folks like actually Marshall McLuhan or Felix Guattari, these are all people who are trying to explore the ways that the socioeconomic environments and institutions are always engaged in this kind of process of of producing particular kinds of consciousness or, or kinds of subjectivity, right? It's orienting our, our attention in, in particular ways. And so all this to ask, as we're kind of reentering this space where the, the ways in which society has operated for the past 50 years are kind of coming back up for inspection and we're having these critical discussions, 
how do you think that this idea of human development might be able to mesh in with this kind of more mature form of socialism that, that you're describing? Is there any way that these kind of explicitly engage with one another? For me, at least they do. I mean, I would say there's one very clear nexus between these ways of thinking is that if we're going to start imagining, you know, whether it's in Keynes terms of the economic possibilities for his grandchildren to be different kinds of people, or whether we're talking about sort of the project of working class emancipation as being in part the eman- the abolition of the working class as such, that is that our sort of identity, mm-hmm. our meaning as humans is not tied up with work in the same way. Then it comes down to the question of like, yeah, what are the conditions in which different kinds of subjects are created and in which we create ourselves, mm-hmm. right? So if we think of it just in terms of, you know, you need, if you want to be able to sort of develop those new forms of sociality, those new forms of social life, new kind of things to do with ourselves, you need both the material basis of that, your material needs met in some way, and you need time. Mm, And so if you're, you know, work, if you're just working long hours at your job all the time, you don't have that time. If you're, you know, precarious and just like hustling for money any way you can, you don't have that. It's like, so in some ways we can think of the more sort of top down and sort of state-based projects of, you know, increasing wages, shortening working hours, creating universal benefits as much as possible. On the other side, that open opens up almost uh, the space of anarchist experimentation and how people can live together, you know, agreeably and well, as, uh, as Keynes put it. Uh, and so that, that, again, to me, is some of that, that dialectic of the, the victory of reforms and the social instability that they ultimately foster, because a capitalist economy, it's a system not just of economic exploitation, but also a system of control, of control of human beings. And then when you loosen that control, I think, and I think, again, this is one of the lessons of the high tide of the welfare state, you are loosening workers not just to demand higher wages and cut into your profits but to actually question the very foundations of what it means to be a disciplined worker uh you know engaged in employment and though and so to the extent we can open up those spaces we can begin to sort of ask those questions but i do i do think it's important to insist on there being that material basis for it that we're you know we're not going to figure out any of these things or change any of these things in the abstract if the material economic ways in which we have to live our lives are not reshaped in some way Right. Yeah. That's one of the ways that I think about kind of what we can learn from the past century and how we can apply that now is to think about, you know, what are the material conditions that give rise to kind of exploratory and experimental behaviors? Because one of the the kind of phenomenon of the 20th century, even during that kind of surge in growth, it was incredibly homogenous, right? That people were buying the same things, watching the same things. You know, the white picket American dream fence kind of took shape there, right? This very homogenous view of what culture was. And it seems so important uh, now to try to work into our ideas and into the discussion how to create the economic conditions for uh, experimentation, for diversity, for differentiation. And then, you know, that's an open question as to what those are. But towards that end, like you've mentioned a little bit, this is somewhere where universal-based income can get pretty interesting. So let's let's maybe pivot into that a little bit. I know that uh, you've been following this for a long time, and I have too, though certainly not as much as you. So before getting into any specific elements, right, since you've been in this space for so long, I just wanted to ask what 
What stands out to you nowadays as, as particularly salient or important in the discussion, both in terms of kind of moving the, the discourse forward on UBI, but also the most important critiques that it has to engage with? Sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very much the environment for talking about this has changed a lot in the 15 years or so, maybe since I first started really paying attention to this, because at that time, basic income was this idea taken up by a small fringe of academics and activists. You know, it was far from being discussed in the realms of policy or mainstream politics. And it was often just used as a wedge for inserting some of these kinds of ideas about you know, human flourishing and emancipation from wage labor by saying, you know, first of all, rather than sort of forcing everyone to work a job, even if that job is useless or destructive in some way, why can't we just give people money in a rich society? And secondly, thinking about the ways that, you know, a lot of elements of the traditional welfare state had their, their own authoritarian and paternalistic logic to them. And that there, there was that sort of kernel of truth in some of the more libertarian critiques of the welfare state that in fact there is something oppressive and dehumanizing about being sort of subject to the whim, whim of various caseworkers and means tests and bureaucratic hoops to jump through. Uh, and so basic income was a way of insisting upon unconditionality and universality as the thing that we strive for. It's not enough just to say that there's, you know, we're providing people with enough to eat somehow, but that we should be doing it, doing it in a way that respects people's autonomy in the greatest way possible. Mm-hmm. Um, now what's happened since then is, well, to back up for a second, there's always been sort of two strands of the basic income or related ideas that have different names, like guaranteed minimum income, negative income tax, so on. There's always been sort of a right and a left wing strand of this. The, the left wing strand is sort of what I was just talking about, about this is like pushing beyond the traditional conceptions of the welfare state toward more autonomy, a libertarian socialist kind of freedom emancipation Mm -hmm. work and so on. But on the right, what it amounts to, I think, if you look back to Friedman, Hayek, and then all the way up through, you know, Andrew Yang, what you find that basic income is essentially a faction of the capitalist class making its peace with the idea that like, okay, there's going to have to be some redistribution. Uh, It's just politically or economically not viable for us to have a completely deregulated laissez-faire capitalism. But if we're going to have to do that, then from, you know, a certain kind of bourgeois free market point of view, you know, the least bad option is to do something like basic income, just do some cash transfers and then, you know, let the market sort it out after that. And because that version of basic income has in the last five years or so, I'd say, become much more prevalent, you know, coming out of Silicon Valley, people promoting it, and then people like, you know, Yang bringing it into the presidential campaign, then I think it's become, I find it much more important now than I used to, to be critical and to make these distinctions, right? I went from being the sort of like guy who was like, hey, basic income is this cool idea that you probably haven't heard of that brings up all these interesting complications to the left's project to be to saying, okay, well, let's talk some <laughs> right. what it is we're actually talking about and things like how high, how much is the basic income? Because that it has weirdly nonlinear effects depending on how much money it is. What is it replacing or not replacing with respect to other social benefits? And the answers that you get to those questions will give you entirely different answers about what the political character and the effect on political economy is likely to be of a basic income. Yeah, that that's one of the most interesting, um, I think, spaces of, of uh, dialogue going on is a, a lot of people, and especially progressives, will frame UBI as essentially a 
capitulation to neoliberalism, right? That it's kind of the ultimate kind of, like you're saying, uh, okay, we've got to do something. Let's do this. So you, you mentioned the payout rate, right? The the actual level of basic income as being crucial to kind of determining what kind of impact it has. What else What else kind of matter, matters in this space of differentiating UBI as kind of a, a, a deep, meaningful reform of, of kind of broader democratic socialist change or just following into that kind of capitulation to neoliberalism? Well, the the underlying concept that I've kind of used in talking about this sometimes is the decommodification of labor, mm-hmm. which is an idea that comes from sort of indirectly from Marx. But the particular term I take from the sociologist, Rosta Esping Anderson, who used it when he was talking about social democratic welfare states and comparing them and starting from the position that one of the things that characterizes a capitalist economy is that labor itself becomes a commodity, which is to say that you, the worker, have nothing, if you have nothing else to sell but your own labor, your own ability to labor, then that's what you have to sell in the market. And that's how you have to gain access to all of your needs. And to the extent that social programs are in place that provide people for certain of their basic needs without having to resort to selling their labor on the market, we can say that that labor has been partially decommodified. And in capitalism, it's never totally decommodified because that's the basis of the entire system. If you can't, if workers at some level are not economically compelled to work, uh, you don't have capitalism anymore. But nevertheless, basic income is in some ways just a generalization of something that you find, you know, that you can say about lots of things in the welfare state. So, for example, one of the things that comes up a lot in debates about healthcare in the United States is this the idea of people being tied to their jobs by their need to maintain access to healthcare and that maybe people would want, would go down to fewer hours or they would switch jobs or they would start businesses or do whatever if they didn't, you know, aren't dependent for their job on their job for healthcare. So it's in that sense that if you had true universal healthcare that was not tied to employment, you would have decommodified labor in that partial way. Mm. And then basic income in that framework is just a way of pushing that decommodifying logic further. Uh, there's a group called the Undercommons that put out a, a few years ago a little argument about this where they distinguish between what they called UBI plus and UBI minus. Yeah. UBI plus is saying, okay, there are certain things that should just be provided, guaranteed as right, as sort of substantive rights in themselves, like access to healthcare, access to housing, access to education. And what UBI should be on top of that for all the stuff where, you know, for reasons of human autonomy and freedom and sort of these like libertarian idea of how you might want to do these things, the residual should just be cash transfers to people because that is the least sort of controlling and invasive in people's lives. But what a lot of right-wing basic income proposals do is they propose to cut out, you know, replace, say, any kind of government direct provision of healthcare with basic income, you know, replace any kind of public housing. And the problem with that, you know, first of all, is just in terms of the numbers, the like mater- the actual sort of material benefit ends up being a net negative, depending on like just how you, what level you set things at. But the right. other problem is that like, you're then subordinating, you know, you've de- you sort of decommodified labor, maybe in some sense, at least if the basic income is high enough that it's actually feasible to live off of it to some degree, mm-hmm. but sort of hyper commodified everything else. And in particular, you've commodified things like healthcare that you really don't want to be commodified in this way, because if you just give everyone about a voucher to buy healthcare with, that sort of presumes that everyone has the same need 
for healthcare, mm-hmm. which is obviously not the case. And in general, yeah. the purpose of insurance is to try to even those things out. But in but in practice, that's why that leads you right back to the to finding that uni- uh, universal provision of healthcare directly rather than giving people money to buy it is actually the most efficient thing on some level, even from a narrowly bourgeois perspective. And so that to me is the sort of is what I focus in on when we're now when we talk about basic income. It's like, is this a way of expanding the decommodification of labor? And if it is, then it pushes us in the direction of the kind of crisis and rupture of labor decommodification that we were talking about earlier, what happens in high tide welfare capitalism. But if it's not that, if it's just a let's actually dismantle even what's left of the welfare state and replace it with nothing but vouchers, then we are, then it is, then I think it is susceptible to that left critique that this is just a kind of cop out uh, libertarian substitute for real social democracy. Right. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. There's been a similar kind of tide uh, in the UK on this on this discourse where progressives have increasingly uh, moved to universal basic services. Right. And, and kind of had that subsume the idea of basic income. So income becomes one facet of a multifaceted approach, including healthcare, including you know, transportation and housing and so on. But but one thing that amplifies right already in in the basic income discourse right there's the question of how to pay for it and as soon as you situate it within UBS or kind of universal basic income plus um, with a lot of other universal programs that kind of exacerbates this question of you know how are we going to afford it so what does anything stick out to you in terms of funding mechanisms as as really promising avenues to consider? Um, well, it's a sort of a complicated question. I mean, there are studies that you can find where people run all these sort of numbers in complicated ways in order to figure out, okay, what can you do with taxes, both income and wealth? Which programs can you actually replace with basic income without making people materially worse off? You know, things like mm-hmm. the kinds of like other cash assistance that already exists. It's worth, I mean, it's worth noting that in a lot of basic income proposals, the big headline number of like, is a bit deceptive because this idea that everybody is going to get it, everybody's going to get checked for, you know, I don't know, $20,000 a year or something, even if it's nominally true, the whole thing's going to be based on progressive taxation. So if you're starting from right. a framework in which, you know, everybody's getting their income topped off with their basic income, but then everyone at the higher end of the distribution is having most of that clawed back as income taxes. So it's sort of an accounting trick. Uh, for something that's primarily just transferring to the bottom of the distribution. So that's one answer, is that you can, these things, if you make some reasonable assumptions about us being able to go back to somewhat higher marginal tax rates and, you know, understand what the tax incidence consequences are here and what other costs you can potentially not have if you have a basic income, you can make it look sort of, you can make it look better in terms of those numbers. I mean, I would also say that while obviously, if we were talking about implementing a real basic income as an actual policy, you would need to figure that out. You know, you need to figure out a bill you could pass and, you know, that you could write that would be workable in the short run. So I would be concerned about that. What I'm less concerned about that sometimes comes up about is what is how viable it would be in the long run. And mm-hmm. the brief reason for that is essentially what I've been arguing before, that nothing is viable in the long run. <laughs> the whole point of base, something like basic income is to open up, you know, good possibilities rather than worse ones, you know, better crises rather than worse ones. And so, you know, one of the things that is in- also interesting about basic income and about all of your sort of universal program demands is that there's sometimes, you know, it's sometimes argued by political scientists that they're subject to what's called the, the policy ratchet, which is that it might be very hard to implement something like this. 
and to win it politically. But once you do, it's also going to be very hard to get rid of or to cut it back. Mm-hmm. You know, so people will look at like the popularity and, and the strength of Social Security in the face of generations of attempts from both Democrats and Republicans to cut it. Uh, and to say that basically with basic income, even if you initially wanted at a low level, at, at a sort of level that's, you know, not particularly decommodifying, not enough to live on, once it exists and everybody has access to it, people are going to want to fight to increase it. And that's going to be very hard, hard to cut it back, uh, which right. and could lead to economic and political crisis of some kind farther down the road. But again, my argument is that all reform in capitalism leads to that crisis at some point down the road. Yeah, and and that's really interesting, uh, important. I think to point out when you were talking about the the cost, and, and which is often referred to as the difference between the gross and the net cost. Um, I, I spoke in the past on the podcast with a guy named Carl Weiderquist, who's been involved in the basic income debate for about forty years, and he's done some work to try to show this. And and generally, right, the the quick way to calculate the cost is you take the population who'd receive it and you multiply it by the annual payout rate. So if you take, you know, $15,000 a year, you multiply it by the adult population in, in the US, you come out to somewhere around three or $4 trillion. And then critics will say, you know, we can't possibly uh, afford that. But if you, like you were saying, if you deal with the net cost, which means you take that gross cost, which is how much would have to be raised, like we have to raise that much money via some kind of tax implementation. But most of that money people who receive the basic income, like you said, are going to be paying out the same amount or even more. So uh, the the kind of mass chunk of it winds up canceling itself out. And the net cost, um, Carl did some like very quick calculations based on simple assumptions. But just to give give a, a ballpark idea, he came out to somewhere around 900 billion um, as being the kind of net cost. And you compare that against 4 trillion. It, it's very important to kind of bring that into the discussion, the difference between those two. Yeah, I think that's and it, it's right, and it brings us into the realm of where we can compare it to things that exist whose costs never get questioned, like the military budget. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the military is up around $700 billion, and I'm sure there's more to it than just that. Right. And so, yeah, that kind of, you were kind of touching on this, but I think this is an interesting direction to go as well. If you imagine that a UBI is implemented... Um, and you kind of forecast what's going to happen. One of the really interesting spaces is, um, you know, as an adequate UBI is implemented and people might begin dropping out of paid labor in in favor of doing other activities that they'd prefer to do, you can imagine that the, you know, amount of taxable income is going to decrease. So this is often talked about as, as, you know, UBI kind of uh, decreases or depletes its own tax base. Um, And you wrote about this in your book that, at that point, if that does happen, you know, there's kind of two perspectives on what that means, whether it's a problem that UBI kind of claws away from its own viability long term or not. So do you want to talk about that a little bit, what's kind of called the, the capitalist road to communism? Right. So that's really one of the things that first got me interested in basic income as an idea. The phrase, the capitalist road to communism, it comes from the title of an essay by Philip Van Paris and Robert Vanderveen in the early 80s who were in a circle of kind of like analytical Marxists um, at that time. And it was this just little thought experiment about exactly this question of you, of, that you just raised of what happens if you have something like a basic income that allows people to opt out of paid work and, and to some degree opt out of the monetized capitalist economy. You know, the way they framed it was in sort of kind of gradualist way than I might, but it was sort of interesting as a thought experiment because it did sort of suggest, well, yeah, one of the things 
you know, one of the things as we sort of talked about earlier, one of the things that people on the left are all often skeptical about with basic income is it's say they're saying, well, isn't this just sort of marketizing even more, you know, injecting monetary and market relations into like every sphere of life even more than before, which in the short run, you can sort of see that it's sort of like if, you know, if you're focusing on sort of giving people money with which to get whatever they need in the private market, it can be seen as sort of the most marketizing way of doing this. But then if you imagine if people have both sort of the time and the money to sort of set up ways of providing for themselves outside of the market, right? Whether that's setting up whatever cooperative workspaces or, you know, childcare arrangements, you know, gardens, whatever it is, you know, mm-hmm. experimenting with some technologies that allow for production in an efficient but small scale way, you know, like, you know, people talking about the future of 3D printers or whatever it is. The idea, however, here is just that the basic income provides the groundwork for people to figure out and develop those spaces. And the incentive to develop them is partly because, you know, people would find them more fulfilling, but also because, you know, your basic income will go farther if you, you know, pool it and use it with a collective of your comrades to provide most of what you need without having to buy it on the market. And that Mm -hmm. the long-term consequence of that would be exactly as you said, that the, you know, GDP, meaning not sort of material economic activity, but measured money economic activity would start to decline. And that in turn would mean that then the, the basic income uh, itself, the, ta- the, ta- the basis on which the thing you're supposed to be taxing to get the money for the basic income would be shrinking. And so then you are getting into a sort of a bit of a, you know, the crisis mode. This is the point where, you know, there would be an, ec- there would be an economic viability question of can you raise the revenue needed? There would also be a sort of a political viability question because this is the point at which the existence of the capitalist class as a capitalist class is materially threatened because fundamentally their power comes from the on paper value of what they own. And as the size of the monetary economy shrinks, then the capitalist class shrinks with it. And so there would be a very, that would be the point I think at which you would have the really pitched battle, the, you know, really the kind of class conflict would come to a head around that. But this is like at least a way of thinking about how, Though in the interstices of a still formally capitalist system, something different, something post-capitalist could begin to emerge. And, you know, you know, if you want to think about it in the sort of thought experiment gradualist way, not that I think that this is how anything would exactly happen, but you could imagine that the basic income starts out or gets at some point indexed to GDP. So that it would naturally, and the idea, of course, in the environment we live right. in, would be like, oh, well, we should just index it to economic growth so that as... GDP goes up, our basic incomes go up. Well, at some point, it just starts moving in the other direction. And that mm-hmm. basic income starts to wither away because the capitalist economy itself is withering away and becoming demonetized. Right. And and the, I love that idea of, of kind of pegging the UBI payout rate to GDP levels because in that uh, situation where GDP starts to decline, at least Possibly, right? one of the reasons that's declining is because people are finding other ways to meet their needs. Like you were pointing out, could be voluntary community modes of production, more interpersonal uh, relationships or so on. But this idea that <clears throat> if the GDP goes up, the UBI goes up, great. Uh, if GDP goes down and UBI also goes down, it's not that we're losing ability or or access to those things we need to survive. It's that we're changing the modes of production for those things to begin with. I thought that was a really interesting kind of elegant way to look at it. Yeah. And I think that's, that I think is another one of the, the conceptual frameworks I use a lot comes from the late uh, Marxist sociologist, Eric Olin Wright, Mm -hmm. who in his book, uh, 
on the the real utopias project, which is what he was doing toward the end of his life, in which basic income played a large role. He was really interested in thinking about you know what he conceptualized as a kind of the three way interaction between the state and the capitalist formal economy and the third space of all of this kind of communal, non-market, other kinds of activity that can interact with the other two spheres. And it's sort of that that interaction is one of the more intriguing and interesting things to me about debates over things like basic income. Right. Yeah. So I've been thinking a lot about, I've been exploring a lot of the actual kind of proposals of, of UBI and different ways of implementing it. And there's there's one that's kind of starting to take shape that I think is kind of interesting, and I'd love to to get your feedback on it. it it's a loosely held view, you know. I don't know how I feel about it, but but it, it's kind of claiming more of my uh, my interest. So I want to try to articulate it and and see what it looks like. And the starting point is to agree, right, with the progressive critique of UBI that just throwing money at the problem is not going to be sufficient change that has to be kind of embedded within a broader project of, of more radical reform. But it does seem that no matter what, right, most people will, will say that UBI is not going to be enough, right? It has to be the UBI plus model. Um, so it, if this is true, that UBI itself is not ever going to be enough, what if we formalize that, right, by by not insisting on a high payout rate to begin with. So if, to contextualize a high payout rate, let's say $1,000 a month, which is kind of the average proposal and anything below that's kind of considered insufficient in the progressive discourse. So yeah, so the idea that no, even if UBI is up $1,000 or more, that's not going to be enough. It needs more, right? And if we formalize that by unpegging the payout rate from this kind of arbitrarily assessed level of, of what people need or what the poverty level is, um, it becomes much easier to imagine implementing it both politically and economically because unpegging it is going to mean it's it's going to dip below that level. And on one hand, you know that typically that's responded to by saying, well, you're tanking the whole project if you let it dip below that that rate. It's never going to change anything. But again, that seems to me like exactly the point that it's not never going to change anything on its own anyway. So if we if we invert the logic of how we usually approach it, right, rather than choosing how much basic income should be and then finding a way to fund it via a, a bundle of progressive taxes, what if we use a kind of fluctuating basic income as a way to equitably distribute revenues from a set of taxes that we want anyway, right? So that the, the point of UBI wouldn't be so much the payout rate as a kind of way of distributing a particular program of taxes that would operate on those incentives of society. So for example, I can imagine implementing something like a land value tax or licensing fees on common property and natural resources so that companies and individuals can no longer uh, own, for example, you know, broadband spectrum rights or gas or oil or trees, but they have to essentially rent these out from society because nobody should actually own these collective resources. And those revenues that are raised, you know, can be divided amongst everyone in a UBI or this is kind of more in the territory of, of a social dividend. When this is obviously very much like the model that's already underway in Alaska, um, you know, they, they have their oil um, and they tax revenues on the oil and that tax is split amongst all citizens and their payout rate uh, fluctuates as those kind of capital flows do. Um, but but the idea of formalizing that UBI will never be enough by unpegging it, what I think that does is it forces the the kind of progressive project to shift their focus onto the other reforms. Because if you have a UBI that's only going to be you know between four and eight hundred bucks a month, then the fight for universal health care becomes all the more important, and the fight for all these other programs become all the more important because those are going to be the mechanisms of change. So I, I, I don't know how does that how does that sit with you? 
Well, there's some there's a few concerns that that I have with this kind of way of thinking about it. One has to do with having you know the level of a basic income or the level of any social benefit sort of pegged to some other kind of policy priority or some other kind of indicator. Mm-hmm. It's away from what sort of the universalism of the demand is meant to drive at, I think, which is to say that we're demanding something as kind of a social right that mm-hmm. everyone should have because everyone should have it, not because it's sort of the side effect of like, well, if there's enough revenue from this, whatever, then that gets redistributed, like right. the permanent fund model. So in terms of its political vision and its political purpose, there's some concern with that. Now, that being said, I, you know, I am somewhat in favor of like the idea of, be- of getting even the weak UBI because of the kind of policy ratchet effect that I was talking about earlier, which is like, even mm-hmm. you have a small one, you can, it's probably easier to fight to increase it than for the other side to fight to get rid of it entirely. But that's another reason why I think it's important for the level to be set politically mm-hmm. and not have it be a side effect of some technocratic calculation. Um, right. another, you know, another thing I would say is in things like this, I, I always say, beware of dual mandates, uh, which is to say, be wary of trying to accomplish two potentially uh, opposed things with the same policy. Uh, uh, so like, you know, the dual mandate in American discourse often refers to the federal reserve, which is supposed to simultaneously re- uh, control inflation and uh, keep full employment. Uh, um, but in historically it is always taken, it always prioritized inflation fighting over full employment. And with something like this, you know, if you have, for example, you know, the most obvious source of large amounts of revenue that we would like to collect anyway that could then be redistributed is something like a carbon tax, right? Right. But the problem is that then you're taxing something because you want less of it and then putting and then redirecting that into something we want more of, which is the basic income. And so if the carbon tax is successful, the, the basic income will start to wither away, not for the good reason we were discussing before, which is that people are building out the post-capitalist world in the interstices of the present society, but just because we have solved or begun to solve one problem, which is carbon emissions, but without solving another problem, which is people's inability to access the basic needs of subsistence. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's also, I think that's such a, an underexplored dimension of the UBI discourse is, is the way it's funded. Because like you're saying, whatever funds it has such a a profound effect on the way it operates. So for example, if we think about a basic income that's funded by uh, a wealth tax by high progressive, you know, marginal income tax rates by a carbon tax. These all have laffer effects, and like you're you're pointing out, right? The laffer effect is when when you start to tax something at a certain rate, um, it, it decreases the overall tax base. It, it disincentivizes that activity. So if, if it's funded by a carbon tax, and the point of a carbon tax is to decrease our use of carbon, right? That revenue is going to decrease, and you can you can think about this in the same kind of effect occurring in in progressive taxes. There was actually um. Gabriel Zuckman and Emmanuel says their their book last year, Triumph of Injustice. They they tried to calculate the point in each of these progressive taxes, like a wealth tax and like marginal income tax rates. Like where is the point where you can tax this thing before you start to create incentives that will decrease the overall tax base? And that's why I haven't done a lot of looking into this, but it, but there's a big movement to do a full swap of of using a land value tax to fund a basic income. But I'm I'm really interested in 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 thinking about the the relationship between these funding sources and the UBI over time because it is so important like you're saying just to forecast the long-term effect of it all yeah I mean and then one other thing it's another point that sort of relates to all this about sort of <laughs> understanding the interactions and the effects uh, when we're talking particularly about 
lower levels of basic income. I think mm-hmm. from a left perspective, you would have to say that you absolutely need very strong res- floors on wages if you do that, mm-hmm. because otherwise it just becomes a subsidy to low wage labor. Mm-hmm. Um, you, if it's not enough to live on, uh, but it is somewhat substantial, what it just means is that the subsistence value of labor has shifted such that the boss has to pay you less for you to be able to survive because you have the basic income supplementing it. Uh, right. Not a desirable effect. And so you, that's another kind of complication that comes into play here. Right. And you even kind of like just to, to spell out one more kind of a potential crisis mode that it leads to, you, you touched on it a little bit. I, I kind of think of it as the political tyranny problem. But if people become inc- like very heavily dependent on the UBI and we, we determine it politically, so we have a predetermined payout rate, you can wind up in a situation where the majority of the population are net recipients of UBI. And and since they constitute the majority, they can technically kind of democratically elect to increasingly raise the payout rate. Um, and so you, you essentially get a, a flip of the usual condition where you have the majority of people, not necessarily in poverty, but who are net recipients of UBI kind of exploiting a wealthy minority to further and further increase the rate of uh, money they're essentially squeezing out of them. So it's a very kind of strange forecast overall. Yeah, although I mean, I think it's hard to imagine such a scenario persisting. Like it would, because it, a system, even if, right, I mean, even if we're supposing a better functioning democratic process than the U.S. or most countries have today. It's hard for me to imagine a world in which there's a, a minority that is rich enough to fund everyone else's UBI, but also not powerful enough to stop them from arbitrarily raising. Right, them. right. Yeah, that does seem like a bit of a contradiction. You have on your website uh, a really interesting diagram that kind of shows all these different spectrums and poles of UBI discourse. And I really encourage people to to check it out. I'll have a link to it on the show note page. But you you essentially set up these different axes that have things like realizing work and transcending work and the side of labor and the side of capital and kind of where people fall on the UBI discourse in accord with how they feel about those things. And one of the, the areas I wanted to zoom in on was the the poll from on one hand, you have realizing work, and on the other hand, you have transcending work. Because I, I think this is a really good point that depending on our relationship to the idea of work and what work is, that tends to affect how we think about UBI, whether we think it's a good or a bad idea, whether we're attracted to the idea of post-work or we think that'll spell the demise of, of integrity of, of humans. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you to kind of dig in a bit to to what it means to be on the kind of realizing work end of the spectrum and on the other hand, the, the transcending work. What are these kinds of work at play? Right. So well, a lot of my way of thinking about this, I uh, get from the Kathy Weeks, the feminist Marxist thinker who writes about this in her book, The Problem with Work, and how you get these different, over the history of capitalism and the history of the left, these different conceptions about how we should be thinking about work and what we should be wanting out of it or not wanting out of it. And you know, the first one is just that we want more work. And this is the kind of, it's a baseline assumption of a lot of our uh, a political conversation, right? If we're talking about economic growth, we're talking about jobs, right. we're talking about, we just want more work because that's what people need to survive. And we want, and the more there is, the better we're growing and so much the better, right? Right. And beyond that, you get to the stage of saying, well, no, we don't just want more work. We want better work. And this is where a lot of the left's traditional, particularly the, you know, the workplace labor organizing based left that says either, either we want to organize unions in our workplaces or start our own worker cooperatives so that we can do, you know, the same sort of work for market exchange, but at least do it in a better, more democratic, more self 
more autonomous, more fulfilling way, right? Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, you then get to the people who are like, well, that's all fine, but maybe we should just, as a starting point, just be talking about straight up less work, right? Which in some ways is also a thread that runs through the entire history of, you know, the left under industrial capitalism. Um, If you go, you know, going back to the struggle for the 10 hour day, the struggle for the eight hour day, the kind of failed struggles during the depression to push below that. Interestingly, after about the mid 20th century, which is that kind of, you know, for reasons we can get into if we want, that kind of tailed off, right? Shorter hours became subordinated to just higher wages as the demand. Right. So it was more work for more money rather than less work as the demand. But the importance of the demand for less work, you know, the old old, uh, eight-hour day slogan, eight hours for sleep, eight hours for work, eight hours for what we will, is that that what we will and the expanding that what we will part is where we do actually figure out in a much deeper way, you know, even what better work would look like or something that we don't even think of now as work or, you know, kind of moving where the boundaries are between paid work and hobbies and unpaid reproductive labor and all of these things that we sort of, if we think just in the mindset of either just getting more and more of the work that we have or sort of marginally improving, you know, the work that we're doing, but without trying to just reduce its duration or, you know, get rid of some of it, that we're not, that we're leaving ourselves sort of trapped in that same logic and the same limits of the mid 20th century welfare state. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. I'd love to hear uh, about this kind of evolution where the project went from arguing or fighting for shorter working hours to fighting for higher wages, right? Because higher wages kind of fit into this idea of allowing us to further participate in the system, whereas shorter working hours give us kind of more uh, autonomy, more control over our own time and, and creates this kind of space where alternatives can really begin taking momentum. So what, what was that play there in that shift? So, yeah, this is one of the characteristics of what I usually call the Fordist compromise as a way to refer to the kind of political and economic order that arose after World War II and kind of had its peak in the 50s and 60s. You know, Fordism after Henry Ford, of course, uh, the term goes back to the Italian communist Antonio Gramsci. Mm. Uh, and yeah, and it's the idea is to just like have a description that's not just capitalism, sort of in the same way we talk about neoliberalism to describe post-1970s capitalism. Fordism is kind of the description of, you know, mm. the period before that, which was characterized as, you know, it's named for firms like Ford, these big integrated industrial companies uh, that were in the 30s massively unionized through enormous upsurge of workers. Um, and then w- and when you look at that Fordist order and how it developed after World War II, you see this shift away from the labor movement's historical concern with shorter hours towards the concern of just bargaining for steadily increasing wages and benefits, right? And Mm -hmm. there are a number of reasons for that. From the side of labor, um, some of it had, you know, it had to do with sort of conservative forces, anti-communist forces within the labor movement. But it also was very clear, I think, if you read these histories, you read like about struggles in the United Auto Workers, for example, that the, the workers and the unions found very quickly that in an environment of continuous you know, high growth rates, it's very important. You have to have that. But when there is continuous high growth, as you had in the post-war era, bosses are willing for the sake of labor peace to give workers a chunk of that rising prosperity, right? Mm -hmm. And that's basically what happened. But what they're much, much more reluctant to do is one, give workers direct control over how the shop floor itself is run, 
wall that the you know, the UAW ran into all the time, and two, they're not interested in shorter hours. And so there was there were dissident factions in the UAW, like in the forties and fifties, for whom shorter hours was the primary concern, and that's what they were pushing for. But they lost out, due I think in part to the fact that that is a much deeper challenge, both on an economic sort of profit maximization level, because they're just reducing the amount, the sheer quantity of labor that the that you're able to exploit, and also for the, I think the deeper cultural and political reasons uh, having to do with the fact that workers with more time just, you know, become in some ways more dangerous, more militant workers. And so I think it was that, it was in that crucible that we got sort of this new normal where it's just assumed that what, what you fight for as a worker is higher wages and more benefits and that working hours are kind of off the table. And I think we've seen it come back a little bit now, um, you know, that sort of, it's just for similar reasons to the basic income stuff. People are sort of asking deeper questions about, you know, less work rather than just more or better work. Uh, and so that's bringing it back onto the table a little bit, but it's be, but it's been, it's something that for basically my whole lifetime had been forgotten. Right. And, th- and that ties right back into these concerns over UBI kind of being a capitulation to neoliberalism is that from the standpoint of the status quo, it is preferable to just uh, give more money, right? Rather than giving time or giving power. Um, so this is where I think conversations around things like co-determination, right? Like you have in Germany where you put workers on boards to actually give them power in the decision-making process of of what firms and organizations do with their um, surplus value and excess profits and so on. And I think that becomes particularly relevant when we start thinking about automation. One of the questions I'm trying to wrap my head around is, you know, how can we make the outcome of automation such that it has a more distributed kind of democratic share in in the in the value that's created right because a lot of times it'll kind of be taken as given that automation is bad for workers um, but a lot of the the kind of socialist discourse today is trying to to slow that down and say, well, wait a second, there's a presupposition in there. Um, automation doesn't have to be bad for workers, right If a firm ben- benefits from automation, the gains that they experience can be shared with workers if we politically decide to do that, right? So how that that question of how to distribute and democratize the gains of automation, I think that has a lot to do with kind of distributing out power. Absolutely, it does. I mean, because, right, because I mean, there's a couple different levels, I think, at which you can approach the automation discourse. I mean, one is just this, this sort of thing you've laid out, which is that if automation massively increases productivity, the question simply becomes not whether automation is good or bad, but whether the benefits of that are accruing to workers. And specifically, if the people who are potentially losing jobs or losing working hours to machines are being compensated. You know, and even if you read mainstream economic models of this kind of stuff, and also if trade works the same way, it'll say, oh, well, if you, then, you know, it's better for everyone as long as the losers are compensated. And of course, they don't right. worry much about the political reasons why the losers are never compensated. So there's that. I mean, it's just a matter. It does become just what the stakes of, you know, if you really care about, you know, automation taking everyone's jobs, you should just care about a powerful mass socialist movement demanding redistribution because that's how you compensate the losers. Mm -hmm. I would also say there's, you know, there's two different kind of modes of capitalist automation, I think, um, or at least two different kind of tendencies that that exist within a lot of technologies, which is that they're not just about making more stuff with less labor, right? Mm-hmm. They're about that, obviously. One of the reasons that you want to deploy any technology is you think that you will be able to produce more efficiently, make more money, and so on. But part of the way that that's done, and also something that's done for reasons that really don't have to do immediately with profit maximization, is that technology is used as a true tool to control the worker, right? So it's like the 
algor- the scheduling algorithm that means that you're a retail worker and you never know when your shift is going to be because that's it's easier for the, your boss to be able to just sort of jumble shifts around like that. Or it's the UPS right. driver who's being tracked all the time on a GPS to keep them sped up. And interestingly, that too was one of the technological dynamics that led to the rise of a certain post-work, anti-work tendencies in industrial labor in like the 60s and 70s, particularly you look at like more radical factions, like some of the revolutionary black workers in Detroit, who were talking about speed up and automation as this kind of really, you know, this dangerous thing where the like use of these new large scale machinery and speeding up of the lines was actually kind of destroying the worker's body itself. And so that part of the rejection of the Fortis compromise was also based in that. And we have now, you know, our newer versions of the same thing. I think it's not the assembly line, but it is the GPS tracker, you know, on you at all times. And that sort of, and the, you know, and the, and, and even the, just the demand to, you know, be accessible to your boss through your electronic devices at all times and all this sort of stuff. And so mm-hmm. if we're going to talk about a politics of technology, I think it's important not to get stuck into this, like, are the robots bad? Are they taking our jobs kind of thing? And more think about, think in a more subtle and sophisticated way about like, what are these technologies doing? Right. And not just take mm-hmm. for granted the the claims that are made for them that like they're all just about you know saving labor in some innocent and gen- and generally non harmful to the worker kind of way. Right, right, yeah, and it's you know when when we think about this idea of uh, of post work, um, it's it's very often uh, bound up in in kind of the progress of automation. And it's interesting because when you explore this in your book, when you explore it in Four Futures, often kind of involved in that conversation is is uh, the replicator from Star Trek, right? Which is essentially a kind of fancy 3D printer that can print any uh, material good um, from, I believe, just you know, no resources. How how bound up do you think the the possibility of a post work society when we think about that in terms of eliminating not all work because humans still are going to need to do things in order for civilization to exist but the kind of drudgery or kind of what what David Graeber might call bullshit jobs how bound up do you think that conversation is in the advance of technology like three D printing or is that possible now devoid of those kind of further advancements. I mean, I think a lot is possible now. How much is impossible to say because we're beyond a certain point, you know, I think that history is the product of masses in motion and can't be quite predicted in advance. But I mean, if you're just looking, just part of, let me put it this way. Part of what I think motivates a lot of the discourse we have now is about automation, about work, about working time is a reflection on the past 40 years of what happened after the breakdown of the Fortis Compromise, which was that, you know, a graph that you've probably seen that many people have seen of the two lines, the one that marks productivity and the other that reflects wages in some right, right? And that productivity just keeps on going up and wages since the 70s basically don't, you know, with some exceptions, go nowhere. Yeah. So just in the gap between those two lines, I think a lot of people can see the possibility for, you know, if not fully automated luxury communism, then at least something a lot more, both leisurely right. than what we have now. Yeah, that's I, I love that kind of the the lines. You you really do see um, the lines. I, I like that idea of the space between the productivity and the wage line being kind of a possibility space. It's kind of in the same way that that if you look at like all the red plummeting lines of the 08 financial crisis, I always thought that as kind of a an indicator of of kind of possibilities reemerging. Um, right. And even you know, another kind of area of, of a hypothetical post-work society, let's say we get there by one way or another, I'm, I'm really interested in, in the idea of 
social contracts in this context, right? Because so much of, of the social contract today, right? In, in one sense, this is a very kind of vague and abstract idea of the social contract. But on another hand, the way it manifests today, I think is very much through employment systems and wage labor and kind of, you know, participating in employment in, in one way or another. And if you think about a hypothetical post-work society where those kinds of forms of paid labor are increasingly optional for people, I always wonder, you know, what's going to happen or, or evolve in terms of what we owe one another, how how we think about being a part of civilization, you know, and, and you've mentioned this. And on one hand, you know, we have no idea and forecasting is really just for fun. But it's really, I think it's exciting to think about how our ideas of what it means to be in a society in relationship with one another might evolve once the idea of a social contract can kind of expand beyond uh, employment or paid labor. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, you know, this is one of my critiques sometimes of certain of the more breathless, uh, you know, kind of left defenses of automation is that they come off with this breezy tone of like, well, we just need to like automate, automate, automate everything and then just redistribute and, you know, reduce the work week and, you know, free up our time. And there is this nagging question of like, free it up for what? Right. By which, you know, and I don't mean the kind of like left conservative critique that says, oh, well, people just need work to give meaning to their lives. And, you know, they'll all just be dissipated and just get drunk and play video games if we if they don't go to work, you know. And well, first of all, I think if we can have a society where everyone's able to, you know, get drunk and play video games and we can get away with that, I think that would be fine. <laughs> Even beyond that, I think the real questions are like what happens when you start to open up those spaces. And, and, and you know, for me, the, the automation for what? The for what is sort of figuring out in a better ways how we take care of each other, how we and how we develop ourselves, and how we build out new kinds of social relations in this in the spaces left behind by uh, by an existence that's dominated by work as not only the source of our material security but also the source of so many people's sense of self worth and place in society. And yeah, for some people that makes post work kinds of arguments kind of threatening or problematic but it's for me it, it is it's what makes them exciting you know yeah it, where we get into like a lot of the you know the feminist conversations about care and emotions and like how you know how how we consciously uh learn to choose to take care of one another uh and then you know it leads to all kinds of other directions you can think about you know you mentioned earlier on in the conversation thinking about like education you think about the way that relentlessly like over my lifetime we've seen the purpose of education sort of like ground down into this very narrow thing that's supposed to be about preparation for the labor market, where, you know, one of the questions to like, how do we give people the tools to live agreeably and happily and well and to take care of one another in like a post-work society is that like, we have to think of education as being about a completely different thing, not training you to be a particular kind of worker, but rather giving you the tools to explore and develop yourself uh, for, you know, whatever, wherever you choose to take things. Yeah, that, that's that's spot on. This is something I keep bringing up in every conversation. I'm, I'm becoming like a marketing account for the work of this guy named uh, Zachary Stein, and this is you know this is his his uh, whole thing as he's talking about if we're going to evolve beyond a wage labor centric society, this is an educational project that we need to broaden that. And you know this goes all the way back to Keynes. Keynes himself in that essay you mentioned, uh, Economic Possibilities, he has this paragraph where he imagines you know okay if we do transcend 
the economic problem, he says something like, you know, I, I think with dread and apprehension at uh, the kind of re-education that would have to occur because we have evolved as organisms in relationship to this economic problem, to this drive for accumulating capital and spending our time engaged in those activities such that our, our subconscious processes, all, all the ways that we function are geared towards that. And if we all of a sudden find ourselves kind of devoid of, of what he calls that traditional purpose, there's going to be a huge shift in in literally what kinds of humans we have to be. And so this idea of, you know, asking time for what, right, automating for time and so on, but what are we going to do with that time? Uh, and, and you mentioned how education has kind of been eroded down to just this preparation for the labor market. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it seems to me like we'd have to invert that logic to ask rather than how can education prepare people for participation in society, it almost becomes how can society become something that serves the process of expanding education, right? So rather than young people kind of being fed into the existing system, the question is, how can we use society to learn things to create better and better educational environments for the, you know, the, the humans who are going to become those that that dictate where we go, right? Who set the direction. Absolutely. And, you know, and it, it is, I'll just add this sort of little addendum to that. I mean, I, I do think, I understand why, why Keynes thought and why some people now think that this whole question of becoming new kind of post-work selves is, is scary. Because if you want to see, I think, a presentiment of the problem that we confront here, I look at the contemporary crisis of masculinity in countries like mm. the United States, in which certain traditional assumptions about how what a man is, what masculine identity is, and what the economic and cultural basis of, of that is, have been eroded in a way that I think is potentially emancipatory and is necessary. But of course, from a conservative perspective, from a patriarchal perspective, it's seen as, as something dangerous and something to be undone, which leads to even sort of, you know, even kind of on sort of left, from even sort of left perspectives, this idea that like the counterpart of nostalgia for the Fordist labor compromise is nostalgia for, you know, some imagined nuclear family, where I think we need to be mm -hmm. the other way towards. I think David Brooks just published a, a, an article in the Times about that, saying we need to move beyond the nuclear family, which was really wild to me. I didn't expect that. Yeah, well, like, move beyond the nuclear family by dumping his wife for his much younger research. <laughs> right, exactly. That, but, um, <laughs> but it's true. It is one of those things where it's sort of like with basic income breaking into the mainstream. It's like, well, even you know, it's even somehow like finding its way into whatever remains of David Brooks's brain. Right. Yeah, and, and so maybe kind of oscillating back from the the hypothetical post work future into kind of policy frameworks for the present. Um, you have, well, you've actually written before. This was the first time I'd seen it, and I loved it about Frederick Jameson's distinction between uh, the utopian impulse and the utopian program. Right, the impulse being this kind of inchoate, undeveloped, uh, just nebulous yearning for these these better worlds, and the utopian programs being the kind of you know method of implementation. And in service of that, right, I'm, I'm trying to really um, pair up policy frameworks with these with these ideas we're talking about. So I know you've commented on the past um, on Thomas Piketty's work when his first book came out, Capital in the 21st Century. And uh, we've mentioned throughout the conversation, right, this this kind of uh, direction of broad spectrum progressive taxation has really developed since Sazen Zuckman laid out a very kind of specific kind of policy program in their book. So I, I wanted to ask about this direction of, of kind of those progressive taxes kind of in the way that they're conceived, is this kind of project coming out of Piketty and, and Zuckman and Says' work something that that you, you think carries the spirit of, of uh, what you're talking about? Or do you think there are still some areas we need to do more work in that sense? 
I mean, I wouldn't say it's necessarily that we need to do more or different work than what someone like Simone Piketty is doing. It's more that I think that can only make up one component of something that I believe has to be driven by mass politics and and by mass culture. And so what I mean is that, you know, one on one hand, I you know, I think that like masses of people, you know, in the streets, whether it's protesting against immigrant detention or rallying for Bernie Sanders, like that reflects the masses in motion that they'll have to make real, that basically that created the, the audience for something like Piketty in the first place. And that can mm-hmm. make that real in a policy way. And I also think that you can look, when you look into, you know, whether it's in our local DSA chapters or their Facebook meme groups or whatever, the sort of broader left culture that's developing now among particularly, you know, the youngest generations is mm-hmm. it itself points beyond like, you know, whether even if what people are doing here and now is, you know, working on the Bernie Sanders campaign in a way that's like very kind of grounded and, and practical in a way that a lot of the, the left, such as it was when I was coming up, wasn't. But at the same time, within that very same milieu, within that same culture, I think is where these ideas are circulating. It is where these post-work ideas are being picked up or, you know, fully automated luxury communism is being picked up and circulated. And I think those two things work together and they grow at the same time. And it's through that growth that we can hopefully reach a point at which in which we are simultaneously struggling for the sort of the minimum program of policy reforms, Medicare for all and so on, while also pushing past sort of our earlier generation's assumption about what the horizon of possibility for socialism or communism is. Yeah. Have you uh, another area that I have no idea what to make of it, but it's it's certainly provocative. Have you come across the work of uh, Glenn Weil and, and the kind of radical markets, radical exchange movement at all? A little bit. Um, and I, I'm familiar. I know of it, but I haven't like read it extensively. Yeah. All right. Yeah. There's they have a, you know, it's a very kind of um, out of the box policy proposals. And I've been trying to figure out how to put that in conversation with the kind of uh, democratic socialist or progressive taxation frameworks. And I'm always interested to, to get opinions, but I'm still working on that. Yeah. But, um, I'll have to revisit it myself. I mean, with that sort of stuff, when it comes up this, like, you know, it, this kind of, it's sort of a, yeah, it's a particular flavor of like libertarianism that comes out of sort mm-hmm. of economics, you know, and I, I've, I've over, you know, the course of my work, I've taken things from those sorts of perspectives Often, and I mean, some of the basic income thinking comes out of that sort of way of thinking, mm-hmm. uh, and in part, that's driven by something that I've always kind of emphasized, which is that you know, for a lot of people on the left, I think, and this was particularly something that became sort of hegemonic, like in the '90s, maybe, was this idea that the problem is the market. Right. Mm-hmm. The problem of neoliberalism is it subjects everything to the market, and so what we need to be doing is fighting against that, um, which is not entirely wrong. But what I always try to emphasize is that my problem is not so much with the market, the idea that of things being bought and sold. My mm-hmm. problem is with the labor market. Right. The fundamental of cap- problem of capitalism is the problem of the labor market. And to the extent that any of the things we've been talking about today work to lessen people's dependence on that labor market by decommodifying their labor, that's pushing us in the direction of freedom in some way. Uh, even if in other ways, you know, the market as quote unquote is still all around us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I often bring up uh, the work of Mark Fisher and capitalist realism on the podcast in, in terms of kind of the taming of the economic imagination that he points to. 
And, and to counteract that, right, beyond uh, just looking at what policy frameworks are already flo- floating around, we have to do the work of, you know, imagining all of the different possibilities, the spectrum of possibilities. And this is something that, you know, you very much did in your book. And for futures, you're bringing together, you know, speculative fiction and social science to lay out kind of a, a diversity of possible directions rather than a single um, a likelihood, right? One direction that seems like that's where we're going. And you've you've pointed to that in a really interesting way where you prefer focusing on possibilities as opposed to likelihoods because a likelihood kind of breeds this sense of determinism and apathy, whereas laying out spectrums of possibilities uh, puts puts kind of collective action at the center. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, part of what, you know, well, there's a number of things that motivated that, you know, I was trained as a, when I was in grad school, I was trained in statistics. And so I prefer to think in terms of like, constructing models and estimating probability distributions rather than exact yeah. predictions, you know, and in, in other sense, it's like what, uh, you know, my view of politics is the in, in Marx's famous line that people make their own history, but not under conditions of their own choosing. So hmm. the extent, then that what I'm trying to do is to lay out the space of possibilities in which we make our choices. That's, that's sort of important. And, you know, given the sort of book that I wrote, the kind of project I was engaged in, I was very set on, although I was not all that entirely successful in differentiating myself from futurism as a genre, from this mm. sort of, like oracular attempt to set oneself up as, as the expert and the predictor. Right. For the reason that because it's, politi- it's actually politically demobilizing, I think, to do that. Also because it ends up making you look ridiculous when you invariably turn out to be wrong in some significant way. <laughs> But also just because deeper, in a deeper sense than that, I think that there's a self-contradiction at the heart of uh, predicting, certainly predicting political economic futures and particularly predicting them, trying to predict them in a sort of an emancipatory way, which is that if the sort of democratic socialist future is the one I predicted, then it wasn't democratically built by the masses struggling uh. So it's actually, it's not actually, think, it's actually not thinkable in that sense. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's funny. That's actually one of the things I was speaking, I was speaking with Glenn Weil about his, his program at Radical Markets. And, and one of the things he said at the end that I thought was really interesting was he's trying to bring in artists as much as possible because it's, it's not so much about kind of laying out the vision and convincing people that the vision is correct, right? It's about giving people the means to have their own organic experiences. And art has this very kind of... Um, peculiar and unique effect of of sparking people into into you know exploratory thinking as opposed to that kind of intellectual trying to force feed somebody a, a particular idea and so the ways in which you were kind of blending in these different you know speculative fictions and and these different kind of novels that have all kind of played with these ideas i thought it was it was it was a really smart way to to provoke the imagination as opposed to trying to force feed a particular idea right i mean the 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 goal at least my the ambition was to to convince you that Star Trek is a treatise on communism and that the work of Karl Marx is a body of science fiction. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I would say to achieve that. One of the one of the the areas in the book that I found so interesting, right? There in the chapter on on communism and equality, you point out how capital relations in society, right? The income distribution and, and access to money, this kind of functions as the master hierarchy, right? That ordering force behind all the other status hierarchies. And hypothetically, in a communist situation where capital relations are no longer that central kind of force that organizes all the other status hierarchies, you wind up with kind of two possibilities, right? Either 
um, all of the previous kind of subsidiary status hierarchies are released to exist independently and autonomously. And there'll be this diversity of all the different ways in which we relate to each other. And the other possibility is that there will just emerge a new master hierarchy. Like I'm thinking of, uh, there's a Black Mirror episode where, you know, the, the like counts on your social media profile turns out to be kind of that ordering hierarchy that underlies everything else. And that gets into a little bit of like a dystopian implication, right? So I, I wonder how you think about this this transition if we are successful in kind of moving beyond capital relations as the ordering force of social relations. What's at play in terms of like, do, should we expect that there would be a new ordering force that emerges or is there a way to kind of design for this kind of independent autonomous, like a garden explosion of, of different status hierarchies? Yeah, I was sort of starting from this idea of like what would happen if you take away the material need to process everything through the axis of money and through the capital relation between capital and labor. And yeah, my thought is that this means that all this sort of different status hierarchies proliferate and intersect, but don't all kind of get lumped together or they aren't all sort of translatable back into economic power. And yeah, and I think there's no reason to suppose that there's, that's impossible for there to be another kind of sort of master structuring hierarchy. But then you'd have to think about like what, are the material conditions for that? What kind of social relations would there have to be? And I think in particular, how would that relate back to people's ability to materially satisfy their needs, right? Mm-hmm. And because like thinking about this idea of like likes, I played with this a little in the book too, about this idea of sort of likes and upvotes and whatever as a kind of social currency. And of mm-hmm. course, now see even even in China with the social credit system, there's a sort of a, right. a kind of an attempt to blend these that you know capitalist kind of forms of, of hierarchy with with these newer sort of social kind of hierarchies. But the you know the question always is sort of like, what are the stakes of these competitions, and uh, can you escape them? You know, one of the other things that that always sort of is another sort of is, an, is another sort of little bit of. Uh, that sort of motivated a lot of my thinking about these questions, which also goes in a sort of not maybe traditionally leftist kind of way, which is, uh, you know, the old uh, Albert Hirschman book, Voice, Voice, Exit Voice and Loyalty, um, mm. sort of way of thinking about organizations and institutions. So that like the democratic, radi- democratic right of voice is one way that we think of like how we kind of take control over our lives or our economy or our country. Um, but the right of exit is the sort of more traditionally like the sort of the market way of thinking about it. Um, if you don't like this product, you can buy something else. If you don't like the standard right. move, and the problem is that there is no right of exit from the cap, the master capital hierarchy itself. Um, and so the so there's one of the books I talk about in my book uh, is Cory Doctorow's Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, which takes place in basically a post scarcity society. Uh, more post-scarcity even than Star Trek, in fact, since you can be resurrected after death. But like the story turns on these people who are engaged in a common project in which their hierarchy and who makes decisions and who's in control depends on how much woofy they have. And woofy is what doctors term for essentially, you know, likes your sort of social esteem among your peers. But then the question is, well, what does access to that get you. It gets you the right to control the main common project that the book is about, which is running Disneyland. Mm. In the post-scarcity society, this bunch of people have decided that, that what they really want, they, they really want there to be a Disneyland and they want to be part of running it. Right. <laughs> and yeah. so, and there's all kinds of, you know, the book, there's all kinds of drama and twists and turns and backstabbing and betrayals and things that happen. But the key point is that this, if, if this is a post-scarcity world, these people are not dependent on Disneyland for their, their lives. And so if they feel sort of put upon and 
marginalized and oppressed within the framework of this like woofy based hierarchy can just leave. Um, mm. That might not be ideal. That might be a real bummer, but it's different from the situation in which like you either play the game uh, in terms of accumulating whatever it is that will get you access to money, you know, or you start. The, the possibility of a master hierarchy, I think, is dependent on something that gets in between people and their ability to opt out of undesirable social relationships and still access the means, the material means of life. Yeah, that's something that um, the book uh, Crack Capitalism by John Holloway I, I dealt with really interestingly. He, you know, he's right. If, if there's a single logic that or a single system that offers the material conditions for survival, that logic or that system is going to become that master hierarchy, right? If there's one avenue to um, ascertain those things. And this is one of the strengths, I think, of certain universal or unconditional programs that we're talking about is it's going to inherently loosen the grip of any particular logic or any particular ordering hierarchy, right? It's going to allow people to explore alternatives without sacrificing, you know, the food or the shelter that they need to survive. Right. Absolutely. And I think if anybody who's unconvinced of the central importance of that, look at the history of like welfare rights organizing over the past 50 years and the, you know, the really interesting and really inspiring struggles of like, especially women, especially non-white, you know, who are welfare recipients in New York and other places who were rising up against not just poverty, but the way that people were sort of controlled and treated as lesser by the bureaucracy, by the system as a condition of being able to access benefits. And so it's like the possible, just the sort of baseline level of increased human freedom that you get from truly universal and unconditional programs. I just don't think you can overemphasize. Right. Yeah. Wow. Maybe moving towards something uh, of an endpoint here, I wanted to ask you um, for people listening who really want to kind of immerse themselves in in these ideas or, or get a better idea of of democratic socialism and, and possibilities for the 21st century, um, you've obviously done a, a mountain of reading on this front. So I wanted to ask you for kind of two different dimensions of a recommendation for where to go, who to read. Um, on one hand, right, kind of foundational people, right, who who kind of laid the roots and the ideological vision that you draw from. You've mentioned mentioned a number of people, right, who kind of brought you into that space and made it seem like, uh, you know, the place where you want to play with the ideas and then kind of more out of the foundations and onto the forefront today, right? Who's kind of on the front lines of what democratic socialism is and can be throughout the 21st century. Yeah. Um, it's a tough one. It's a big, it's a big universe, <laughs> but I mean, obviously like as, as obvious as everything I've been saying, you know, my sort of, intellectual trajectory begins from Marx in a lot of ways. And then it goes through modern, you know, writers like Kathy Weeks, who I mentioned before, who really kind of like clarified both the post-work stuff and also put it within the, you know, in, in a feminist context that I hadn't fully articulated before the, the real, the advanced class uh, is Moish Pistone's time, labor and social domination, which hmm. is a very dense kind of full Hegelian post Frankfurt school kind of book but that lays out, I think, and clarifies in ways that I did not understand before I read it fully, the, the sort of underlying radical vision that I'm trying to articulate that's not just about sort of redistributing within capital social relations, but transcending them altogether in, in a really profound way. Um, hmm. And the, the, you know that's, that's still something that I go back to and something that I ground myself in, in terms of like understanding the categories and understanding you know, the ways that it's not just about, you know, that a lot of 
the way socialism, even, you know, in its official state forms has been construed as just being about sort of, well, the, you know, the socialist parties in control and the workers have, you know, some control in the factory or whatever it is. It's not just about that. And so those would be that trajectory for me, be from Marx to mm-hmm. to Castone. You know, there's many others I could name, but, uh, you know, Frederick Jameson, of course, being you, who you mentioned is one of these important sort of hinge for me between the sort of science fictional and the, the social scientific side of these things. Um, mm-hmm. since he's a, you know, Marxist critic, but who's written extensively on science fiction. And then in terms of where we are today, I mean, I guess I can give a couple of places to go in terms of thinking through things in a more programmatic, I guess, kind of political way. I would, Eric Ullman-Wright, who I mentioned before, is who I would pick up and the Real Utopias Project, uh, which is what he, you know, sort of the stuff he did in the last part of his life. Uh, he just died last year, um, which in which basic income and the idea of the dialectics between sort of ruptural change and reformism and all the, you know, these sort of these questions of breaking through some of these sort of stale debates of reform or revolution. And I don't even agree fully with all of the ways that Eric approaches this stuff, but I think he really is had a very, he is an amazingly clear thinker and writer and, you know, sets out a lot of the terms in terms of which, where we should be thinking about things. Another book in sort of a different vein though, but that tries to also answer some questions about what the meaning of democratic socialism is for the 20th century or 21st century is uh, Martin Hagelin's This Life, which, Hmm just came out, published, I guess, last year. And it's, it's, he's comes from sort of like a theological background. And sort of his, a lot of his, of the, the way the book is written is sort of filtered through that and through sort of almost like religious uh, debates about sort of like what is the good life and so on, but then bringing that back to a certain kind of socialism that's fairly compatible with my own uh, and getting back to sort of concrete politics towards the end of the book. So I think that's sort of another, a different angle on trying to thinking through the stakes of socialism today. Yeah, I, I love those takes too with the kind of theological basis. There's a book that just came out um, called "The Enchantments of My Mom," and I, f- I forget the it's Eugene something, and I would I would butcher his last name. I'll put a link to it, but it, it you know it's it's a study of how um, with the increasing kind of secularization of, of of the modern world that capitalism kind of came to fill that theological void and and the social implications. But I, I always love those approaches. Um, I would also add, I think, to to that list, especially. Um, you know, for anyone who hasn't already going to check out Jacobin Magazine, there's all kinds of writing going on there. Um, actually, the the essay, I think, called The Case Against Basic Income by, by Daniel Zamora um, mm-hmm. is one that I keep returning to kind of in this dialogue between critiquing and, and trying to refine the idea of universal basic income. And I know that you've actually kind of uh, gone back and forth with him a little bit. Those have been really instructive for me to read. Um, obviously, your book for Futures, which I'll put a link on and, and your personal website as well. Uh, do, do, does anything still kind of linger on your mind? Anything you want to bring up? Uh, no, I'm not at the moment. I feel like we've had a good, gotten through a lot, again, through a lot of different things, a lot of different interesting places here. Yeah, I, I agree. All right, that is that. Um, Peter put his finger on what I think is one of the most interesting and lacking dimension of leftist politics. If we are designing to achieve more leisure time, right, to spend less time working jobs that we don't particularly enjoy and that don't particularly do much for society, we should also be asking time for what? In a hypothetical post-work society where work only occupies a small portion of our time, um, it does not automatically lead to a better situation, right? Material change is not the condition, but the precondition for more meaningful experiences of freedom. 
and I, we need to think about what new modes of education would be needed to support this kind of transition. And that this is actually somewhere I'm thinking of taking the podcast down the road next. Um, I still have a couple unreleased interviews delving into specifically economic questions. And I'm thinking that after those, I might look to do some interviews exploring the kind of radical edge of education reform. So any ideas or tips or books, send them on over. All right. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your day.